Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. It will be chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. 3, 1 to 8. And we'll be looking at the subject, or rather, if you prefer, the title, Answering Jewish Objections. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. Without exception, all humanity bear the guilt of sin and as such are under the wrath of God. This essentially is the point of Romans chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 3 and verse 20. In chapter 1 verses 18 through 32, Paul showed how that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, commonly referred to as pagans, or as the heathen, are guilty before God for their rejection, suppression, and perversion of the truth of God. In chapter 2, which we are considering last week, he argued that self-righteous religionists are likewise sinners before God, guilty of doing the very things for which they judge and condemn others. Like the out-and-out sinners, they too have not honored and submitted to God. Now in chapter 1, Paul had been addressing an unnamed group of people he referred to as they and them. We see that in verses 19, 22, 24, 26, 28, and 32. And just for the record, just for the record, he wasn't using those pronouns in the way some use those words in our time. As the context suggests, he was evidently addressing pagan idol worshippers, that is, Gentiles. In chapter 2, there are clear indications that he then shifted his focus to another group of people, that is, the Jews whom he does not mention until the 17th verse. Paul contended that although they were in possession of the Mosaic law, they did not obey, thus proving themselves sinners. They were hearers and not doers of the word of God. Whereas they preached the law to others, that law that God had given them, they did not practice what they preached. We see that in verses 17 through 23 of chapter 2. And so having sinned just like the Gentiles, the Jews are in need of the gospel of God's saving grace. That was Paul's contention in chapter 2. And we come now to chapter 3, where in verses 1 through 8, 
Paul responds to objections which might be raised by his Jewish readers in reaction to certain statements he made in chapter 2. Three objections. The first objection he addresses concerns the question, is there nothing special about being Jewish and about being circumcised? And he phrases the hypothetical objection like this in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? You see, back in chapter 2, Paul had taught. In fact, he had made at least two statements which on the surface seemed as though he was belittling or making light of the spiritual privileges the Jews historically had above other nations. That what he was suggesting was that there was nothing particularly special about being a Jew. And what were those statements of Paul that could have led his Jewish readers to this conclusion? First of all, his statement in verses 9 and 11. Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 which goes as follows, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That statement of the Apostle Paul would have been most troubling, it would have been most troubling for the Jews as they were of the assumption that being the elect people of God automatically meant that they were exempt from divine punishment, that they were God's favorite, that they were God's pet. Second, the statement in verses 28 and 29, which goes as follows, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That statement to the average Jew, the average Jewish reader of the Apostle Paul, seemed to have been a disparagement of circumcision. And as you know, circumcision, this matter of circumcision, God had established with the Jewish nation as a sign and seal of the covenant between him and Israel, that is the Jews, with respect to their being a people set apart for him. But far from belittling circumcision, what Paul was simply saying, Paul was simply making the point that there is a world of difference between being externally religious and being internally righteous. And surely this is a point which many need to hear in our time. Many a religious person needs to hear and understand in our time because how sad it is. That even on a morning like this, while many are dutifully and devotedly going through all the forms of religious rituals, they are strangers to the saving grace of God. Yes, they have been christened, catechized, confirmed, but at heart they have never been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have never been changed by the saving, renewing, transforming power of God. Someone has well said of such people, they have church without Christ, religion without regeneration, ritual without redemption, outward liturgy without inward reality. That marks a great number of people in churches, even on a morning like this. 
They are taking in and they are participating in the wine and wafers and all the uh, paraphernalia of religion, organized religion. But as far as knowing Christ is concerned, they are complete strangers to the grace, the saving grace of God. And it was along such line that Paul was addressing this matter of being Jewish and circumcised. For one is not a Jew, for one is a Jew, he says, who is merely one, no one is a Jew, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul was simply saying it was not enough to be merely externally religious. One must come to the place where, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in him, one undergoes a transformation of heart and mind by the grace of God. If at heart one has not been renewed by the grace of God, then all the religious forms and rituals are worthless. And this was the kind of argument of Paul, the Apostle Paul, that the Jews could potentially misunderstand, concluding that Paul was dismissing, that he was belittling all the covenant arrangements that God had made with them as a people. Now, Paul is intent on setting the record straight. And so in addressing the question as to what advantage the Jews have and what is the value of circumcision? Paul answers that and he says there in verse 2 much in every way. So, right away, Paul is not belittling the idea of being Jewish. Paul is not making light of circumcision. Paul, in fact, says, Look, there is indeed much advantage as far as the Jews are concerned. He says this much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul is speaking here of the revelation of the word of God. And he is saying here that there is tremendous advantage, tremendous advantage in being a Jew. That, And we have to understand this statement in its historical context. At the time he was writing, um, Paul is saying, look, look, there's tremendous, tremendous advantage in being a Jew. Because historically, the Jews were recipients, they were the recipients, they were the custodians of God's revelation. And as suggested by the Greek word proton, which translates the phrase to begin with, he's saying that this, in fact, was their chief and foremost advantage, that this was their prime privilege, that this was their prime honor. That they were recipients of the Mosaic Law was, in fact, one of the things that distinguished them from the rest of the, wor- of the world. And we gather from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which reads, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? We gather from that the great, tremendous privilege that the Jews had above other nations. The Jews, or Israel as they are otherwise known, had the distinct privilege of having heard God speak to them, we would say today, live and direct. 
Because you'll recall there on Mount Sinai, they actually heard the voice of God speaking to them even as he delivered the Ten Commandments. Indeed, as Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26, he says, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking to them in the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived Paul is saying, look, there's tremendous advantage in being a Jew because, listen, you people have been the recipients and custodians of the scriptures. You have been privileged to have been the first to receive God's revelation. And so the very fact that God entrusted to the Jews his word speaks volumes, according to the Apostle Paul, of their privilege, their spiritual advantage, their spiritual privilege, and part of this purpose, part of the reason why God blessed them so tremendously in making them the recipients and custodians of his word was that through them, they would function as a light to the rest of the world. We trace their history. And we see that not only in their receiving the law at Mount Sinai were the Jews entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God, but through a long succession of prophets, they continued to be recipients of the word of God. God would send them prophets throughout the ages who delivered to them his word. The rest of the nations did not have that privilege. What impact did such privilege have on them? You see, rather than being humbled and transformed by such extraordinary privileges, such extraordinary blessings, they became what? They became complacent. They became presumptuous. We see that in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. In fact, Paul says, you boast in the law, you rest in the law. Such privilege inflated their sense of pride so much so that not only were they judgmental toward others, Chapter 2, verse 1. But they had come to the misguided conclusion that God's electing favor, the fact that God had elected them above all the other nations to be his people, automatically exempted them from judgment even for their disobedience. And this erroneous notion was precisely what Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 2. Let me say this morning, and we said it when we were back in chapter 2, complacency, pride, a censorious, judgmental attitude toward others, these are some of the attendant dangers of spiritual privileges. And we have to watch that. God has endowed us with the blessing of his word. He has endowed us with the blessing of being able to come on a morning like this and hear his word. And it is very, very easy for us to take these blessings for granted. We heard this morning, didn't we, of this particular place in Italy where there is a scarcity, a dearth of the true preaching of the word of God. Let me say this. It is a privilege to have the word of God. It is a privilege to have Bibles. It is a privilege to have the freedom of worship to come and sit and listen to the word of God expounded. You know what the prophet Amos says? He says there's coming a time when there's going to be a famine, a famine not in respect of water, a famine not in respect of bread, but a famine in respect of what? Hearing the word of God. Once again, Paul was not belittling the possession of spiritual privileges, such as the Jews had. 
In fact, notice again in response to the question, what advantage has the Jews or what value is there in circumcision? Notice immediately he says, much every way, much in every way. And you hear him say, first of all, but what is interesting, he only listed one. <laughs> he listed what we, could, we would consider to be the greatest of all privileges, that is having the word of God. Later in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to list a number of other blessings, spiritual privileges, spiritual blessings with which the Jewish people were blessed. He talks about the fact that they were the ones to whom belonged the glory. Talk about the Shekinah glory, the glory of the presence of God. And he mentions, he says, of them Christ came as a divine Lord. And so we want to reiterate this point this morning. It's a tremendous privilege, a tremendous blessing to be a recipient of spiritual privileges. Paul implicitly acknowledges this in Romans chapter 3 verse 2. Let me say to those who are not saved, to those who still are not saved, it is a great privilege to be in possession of Bibles. It is a great privilege to be in a Christian home. It is a great privilege to hear the word of God constantly on the airwaves. It is a great privilege to enjoy the freedom of worship presently in our country. Do you know that a few years from now we might, it's, great, it's not a great possibility we could not be doing this? Somebody says, come on, listen, there are places where Christians are being paid for being Christians. Who would believe that Europe, that was foremost, Britain, that was foremost at one time in the propagation of the gospel in missions would today be hostile toward the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at places like Canada where, where, where pastors are quickly thrown in jail for standing up for the name and cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this, it is a privilege to walk into these doors, through these doors, to open our Bibles and to hear God's word expounded. But you are not saved. Let me say this, my friend. You need to understand, and this was what Paul was getting across to the Jews in his day. You need to understand that in and of themselves, all of these privileges cannot save you. In fact, truth be told, they will serve more to condemn you, rising up to condemn you at the judgment bar of God. Because here's the truth. Every sermon you have ever heard, Every verse of scripture which you have ever read will come back at the judgment bar of God to haunt you. That is why the word of God says, today, if you hear his voice harder, not your hearts, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to hear and accept and submit to the gospel. Now, Paul presents a second objection that might be raised by the Jews. And this concerns the question, how does the faithfulness, or rather how the unfaithfulness of some Jews squares with the faithfulness of God? Verse 3, he says there, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And for us to get a sense of this objection, we again have to go back to what Paul was saying there in chapter 2. You see, God had entered covenant. He had entered into a covenant with his people, Israel. 
that he would be their God, that he, they would be his people. We said that earlier. But the problem was Paul had taught there in Romans chapter 2 that just like the Gentiles, the Jews stood before God as guilty, condemned sinners, that they would be destined for the wrath of God if they refused to have faith in Christ. Though they were entrusted with the word of God, yet they were unfaithful and unbelieving with respect to the word of God. And if what Paul was saying was in fact true, if what Paul was saying was in fact true, namely that outside of Christ there is no salvation, that every single person must come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith or else face the wrath of God, then naturally the question was raised by the Jews, well, what about all the glorious promises of God to us as his people? The fact that he would be our God forever. The fact that he has made covenant with our forefather Abram. The fact that we are his special elect privileged people. If, as you say, Paul, because we have not believed this gospel of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, we're going to suffer the wrath of God along with Gentile sinners, then what about the covenant faithfulness of God to us? What about his special love? For us, Because you remember what the prophet Jeremiah said? Has God saying, the, the prophet Jeremiah has God saying in one of, one of his utterances, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. What about that, Paul? If what you're saying is true, then God, after all, is not really faithful. Is not really faithful, is, is he? Is he really faithful? If God then is going to condemn us because we do not believe this gospel as you, are, as you are proclaiming it, then what of God's faithfulness? How can he be faithful? And in addressing this faulty misrepresentation of the character of God with respect to his faithfulness, or rather his, his unfaithfulness, Paul resoundingly responds in verse 4. He says this, by no means. We would say today, perish the thought. Don't even go there. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What Paul is saying here is this. Paul is saying that consistent with the character of God, God remains faithful, God remains true and trustworthy, irrespective of men's unfaithfulness or unbelief. In fact, as he later states in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The point of Paul's response in verses 3 and 4 of our text then is this, that the unbelief or the unfaithfulness of men on account of which they are judged by God says absolutely nothing. It says absolutely nothing to the effect that God has failed with respect to his character. It says nothing to the effect that God has failed to be loving and faithful a God as he claims to be. Now, we don't want to talk in the abstract here this morning, so let's show how people raise the similar kind, a similar kind of objection in our time. Such questioning of God's faithfulness, raised by the Jews, I would say, has a similar ring to that which some might ask in our time. And that is, you'll hear it asked at times, if a professing believer falls away from the faith, 
then how do we square that with the promises of God? Such promises as 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. By God's power, we are being kept, guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, or Jude 24. God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. When professing Christians fall away from the faith, when they walk away from the faith, when they say goodbye to the Lord Jesus Christ, so to speak, some might raise the question, well, Hasn't God promised that one saved, you know, always saved? And hasn't God promised that he will keep those whom he has saved to the very end? With their falling away from the faith, it means then that the Bible, the word of God, cannot be really true because these people were serving the Lord. These people were evidently, as far as we're concerned, they were zealous for the Lord. They were serving the Lord. Today they have walked away from the Lord. They're no longer serving the Lord this book cannot be trusted. This is not really the word of God. If God's word is true and God is faithful in promising to keep his people, then how comes these, these people are no longer walking with the Lord? Similar kind of objection. My friends, you can mark this down as a fact. You can go to the bank with this. That if any professing believer turns away from the faith, walks away from Jesus as it were, has no more interest in God, in the things of God, that this is no dark mark against the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. We can mark that down. We can go to the bank on that. It is not because God has been unfaithful. We can be sure of that. The blame for their falling away has to lie elsewhere. Let God be true and every man alive. It has to lie elsewhere, not with the Lord. In fact, the word of God suggests that we have our Lord Jesus addressing this very matter, that theirs was what? A false faith. Theirs was a false faith. Theirs was a temporary faith. Theirs was a superficial faith. Theirs was a faith that had no root, a faith which had no solid grounding in God and in his word. That's why they fell away. The fault lies where? With them, not with God. They were never saved to begin with. You say, but they walked with God for years. I wanted to hear this, my friend, my friends. It's very much possible that a professing believer can seem to be walking with the Lord for years, years. In fact, let's take it, a, let, let's take it several notches up. They are preachers, pastoring for years. And then one day just gets up and decides he's no longer walking with the Lord. That happened again recently in the last few weeks. Is there something in the drinking water? And I'll tell you this, the enemy really is at work, isn't he? But the point I'm making is this. If you trace the, the, the decline, the declension of whatever believer, whatever professing believer, the fact is it is not a blight against the faithfulness of God. It says nothing as to God's character, as being faithful and true. In fact, this was what our Lord Jesus taught in his parable of the Sower, Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 
regarding those seeds that were sown on rocky soil, on rocky ground. Here's what our Lord Jesus said concerning those seeds, what they represent. He says this, These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the words of God, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. May I suggest this, that these are sifting days. There are a lot of God's people who have lost their fire. They have no zeal. They're just going through the motions. And let me say this, if not for the grace of God, that's why the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Because I tell you, if we are not properly grounded, if we are not strongly grounded in the word of God, we are going to peter away. We are going to fall away. We are going to... They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained. But that the fact that they went out from us shows that they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained. But the fact that they went out, it shows that they were never of us. Where is your heart, my friends? And so along this line, Paul explains why it is that the unbelief of some Jews does not in any way impugn the character of God as being unfaithful. Citing Psalm 51, how does Paul establish that? How does Paul prove it's not God's point? He cites scripture, Psalm 51 verse 4, in which a psalmist, owning up to his sinfulness, in owning up to his sinfulness, the psalmist, and you know that psalm was a psalm of David, his psalm of repentance after that affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He's confessing his sins to God, and David owns up to his sinfulness, and in so doing, he vindicates God as being true in his word and blameless in his judgment. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak. I might be proved, might prove true in your judgment. And what Paul, in citing this verse, what he is implicitly suggesting is that rather than putting a blight on the faithfulness of God, the unfaithfulness of some Jews only confirms the integrity of God's word and verdict regarding man's sin. You see what Paul is doing here? Paul is saying, look, look here, look at Psalm 51 verse 4. The very fact that you Jews have proven unfaithful is no fault of God. It only underscores the integrity of God's word concerning man's sin. In short, he's saying to those Jews who have proven to be unfaithful, who have proven to be unbelieving with respect to the gospel, that they have brought upon themselves their own demise. With no one to blame but themselves, they incur the judgment of God for their sins. So in short, the unfaithfulness of men does not in any way validate the faithfulness of God. It does not nullify the faithfulness of God. God must ever be declared true and every man a liar. And so we could say this morning, and I'm going to have to wrap up, but let me say here this morning by way of application, that just because people die and perish in their sins, in their unbelief, this does not in any way negate or nullify the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God's word. That word which promises that the belief that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Listen, that is an absolute truth. The gospel is the power of God 
to salvation to everyone who believes. Listen how Paul counters this. But Paul, what about those people? What about the fact that you're preaching and people are not getting saved? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, but even if our gospel is hid, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He says, in whom the God of this world has blinded their eyes, lest they should see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be converted. It's not God's fault. It's not the gospel's fault. The real issue, listen, John 5, verse 40. Jesus looked at some people one day and he said this, you will not come to me that you might have eternal life. Indeed, as Paul will later explain, Paul will later explain in, in, in Romans chapter 9, he, he will explain why it is that, the, the, in, that, that unbelieving Israel, what with all their spiritual privileges, will be lost. Why, Paul? Here's what he says. It is not as though the word of God has failed. <laughs> For not all who are descended from Israel belongs to Israel. And not all are children of Abram because they are his offspring. Spiritual privileges are no guarantee that one will be saved. You could be reared in a Christian home. You could hear the gospel a thousand times and end up lost. You could sit under great preaching week after week after week and in the end be a castaway. Unless that word is mixed with faith, unless that word is mixed with faith and repentance, all your spiritual privileges will be abnormal. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Circumcision is not a matter of externalities, but it's a matter of the heart. Similarly, it's not your baptism, it's not your church membership, it is not your goodness. It all boils down to this. Where is your faith? Is it grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone?